Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13 this morning. And we'll pick up our study here walking through this letter. There's a real issue going on today. An issue that is hard, even an issue that is so difficult that the temptation for us is to simply do nothing. I mean, you can hear the objections right now. It's too costly. It's too hard. It's contrary to love. Objections like these, you know, they quickly come one after another. And so what is the temptation for us and for local churches like us? Well, it's to do nothing. To do nothing about those who claim to be believers and even our members of our churches yet are living in unrepentant sin. Yet as challenging as it is, even as those objections come, what might God have to say about these things? How might he answer the spirit of our age that so confidently and continually declares Love, 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 while it rejects and ignores the very thing that it thinks it's espousing. We don't have to wonder what God thinks. We find his answer. And we find his answer here in our passage this morning. So to see this, let's look at God's revealed word this morning in 1 Corinthians 5. And I'll begin reading here with verse 1. May God give us grace to take up his word and to eat and to receive all of it. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new but you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven but the the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. As we consider Paul's words here, we've seen how careful Paul has been as he has written, as he has thought, and as he has considered all it means to follow Christ. And he's not just writing here for writing's sake, like, well, I hope this has absolutely no effect on you, Church of Corinth and Church Haven Baptist Church. He's not writing for that purpose. He's aiming at the Corinthians' good. He's aiming at our good, at your good, church. Even if it gets rather bumpy along the way, which I think as we have walked through 1 Corinthians, you probably have felt a lot of those bumps. And even right here, even if it shakes us up a bit, which is really where we left off last week, wasn't it? Taken up. And so, so far, he has unashamedly set forth the cross. He set forth Christ as the call for the Corinthians and us to put to death spiritual pride in us. It was this pride, this spiritual pride, that bore some rather ugly fruit in the midst of the church of Corinth. This case of public heinous sin. A man was having sex with his father's wife, with his stepmom. And the pagans are not even tolerating things like that. Now, all of that, all he says there in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, is still in view as we saw all that we saw last week. And so the members of the church of Corinth were tolerating this man's sin, and Paul, he has called them to remove him from among them, to apply church discipline for the man's eternal good. However, as we read all that, we also need to see this wasn't just about him, was it? It was also about the church. It's about you. It's about the church and its unity and its purity and its calling before the living God. They weren't to live and to walk about in the world as though they are leavened, meaning unholy, but as those who are unleavened, as those who are holy, as those who belong to Christ, their Passover lamb. 
Knowing Christ means they, the church of Corinth, and it means we, you, us, aren't to be like the world, but we are to be different from the world. Yet it's at this point, it is just here where Paul has some clarifications to make. And so first, he tells the believers there in Corinth, although they aren't to be like the world, don't leave the world. (laughs) They're not to be like the world, but they're not to leave the world. And so some of them have likely made some wrong conclusions after having read Paul's earlier letter. So it's clear that he did write an earlier letter. I mean, it's right there in our opening verse, right? I wrote to you, past tense, in my letter. So not a lot of work to be done there to see that, implying that he had written a letter before. And so there was a letter before 1 Corinthians. You know, and so now the truth is, he probably wrote three to four letters to the Corinthians. So how does that work? One before 1 Corinthians, then 1 Corinthians, and likely another letter after 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians. And so you can do your homework if you like, but one of those references for the third and fourth letters, 2 Corinthians 2, 3 through 4. That would mean that we don't have one to two of his other letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. Now, as you hear that, you might be asking yourself and probably are asking yourself, okay, so why? I mean, why aren't they here? Why aren't they in our Bibles? You know, where did they go? Well, in in relation to where did they go, we have no idea. (laughs) But in relation to why they are not in our Bibles, the simplest answer is God did not want us to have them. And we really can't go any further than that. God didn't want us to have them. He sovereignly planned and purposed that these two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, are the ones that we need. And so now, here this morning, in this letter, in all 66 books of our Bible, you hear the words of the living God, and you are not missing out. And so with that said, in that earlier letter, he told them, however he might have worded it in the letter, that they weren't to associate with sexually immoral people. So in case there's any question, he clarifies his point here. Some might have concluded, so all saying that we shouldn't hang out with or associate with unbelievers. Like, when I go to work, all the unbelievers around me, I just need to do this. You know, like, pretend like they're not there. Unless they ask me a question, I'll be like, yeah, that's the answer. You know, just kind of, like, throw it at them. Like, other than that, try not to associate with them. I got it. And so that's, that's what he was telling them, right? No. <laughs> that's exactly not what Paul meant. And so he clarifies. He clarifies here in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, we would need to go out of the world. 
And so the clear point is for you and me not to leave the planet, right? <laughs> you don't leave. Otherwise, I mean, like, you have to leave this planet to get away from unbelievers. So don't do that. And so in our case today, the clear point in modern terms, in our terms, taking this to heart, applying this, is to see you're not called to hide from the world. You're not called to hide from the world. The temptation for most of us is not leaving on a jet plane, it's not going to the moon, right? Or maybe a little bit more down to earth. It's not becoming a monk or monasticism, which goes beyond the word of God anyway. I think the temptation for us is a little bit more subtle. Today, it looks more like this kind of holy escapism. You live as though the world does not exist around you. I mean, you have your holy huddle here, and that's all that matters. You're situated in your nice air-conditioned building, surrounded by people you love. I got my church and everyone around me. So you say to yourself, I'm good. This kind of holy escapism. We're basically kind of these monks within our world. We're in it, but we really have nothing to do with it at all. Or... More specifically, you might be saying, you're good. Like, I'm saved. I know the Lord, and so I'm good. So all those out there, they can just fend for themselves. And so when you're out and about, you just simply avoid unbelievers. You try to stay as far away from the gospel and the the word of God and spiritual conversations as you possibly can. And so, sure, you work with them, but you don't do much more than that. Well, that's not to be. That's not what God is calling Christians to be in the world. He's not called us to be absent from the world, not to leave the world. God doesn't have us working in the world to hide from the world nor to live as though the world does not exist. But we, you, and me, and all of us, we are to be Christ in the world, where you are, everywhere you are. That's why you're alive right now, is to glorify him in the world. To say the kingdom of Christ is better than anything else. It's better than America. It's better than any nation or country ever throughout history. And I'm part of that, and I want you to be part of that too. You are to be Christ in the world. And so the simple question, I think, for us is, are you? Are you? Are you being what God has made you and called you to be in the world? Are you being what he's called you? Are you going out and making disciples? Not, not because you're hearing me and like there's like this guilt trip going on. You're like, ah, oh, man, I got to do this now. No, that's not it. It's because you love Christ. You love God. And out of that love, that true love for God, what does it lead to? It leads to loving others. 
and laying your life down for others, which is a fruit of those who truly know Jesus Christ. Love for God and love for others, which includes going and telling them about Christ. And so are you, and perhaps a better question is, in view of what God in his word is saying here and what his word continually tells us to do is, will you? Will you be what God has made you and called you to be in the world? And I hope your answer is, right now, it is yes. And may that be our answer. However, that point, don't leave the world, leads Paul to his greater and his larger point here in our verses this morning. Yes, don't leave the world, but also, yes, do let the world leave you. So Paul, he turns from a clarification in view of his past letter to now turning to his present emphasis. Now he's specifically addressing insiders here, as in the members of the church of Corinth. He's writing in light of verses 1 through 8 in the man who was sleeping with his stepmom. Now here's where the rub comes in for our churches. The challenge for churches not to breathe in the cultural, morally relativistic, I can't say it, relativistic air of our day. So Paul, he doesn't say, yeah, all that unrepentant sin and everything going on in the lives of the members of the church. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really just not a big deal, you know? I mean, all those people who are members of your church that are just really like living and doing things they should not be to do, that's, that doesn't matter. You know, it's all about love, man. That's not what Paul says. Instead, he tells them rather pointedly, not to associate with anyone who claims Christ, yet lives contrary to Christ. So if you want to know a summary of what that means, don't associate with those living in unrepentant sin, yet are claiming to know Christ. And so he writes in verse 11, Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of, and he gives you the list there that you see. And so these are people who profess to be believers, yet they live in ways like these, like this list here, in ways contrary to what it means to know and follow Christ. Now, this is no small matter. I mean, there's, this is where maybe some of your friends might be, perhaps where some of your family members might be. It might even be people who have once served with in other churches, perhaps even in this church. People fall into that category, some people you have served with. And the difficulty of this isn't because it's so uncommon, but because it's so common. And the main issue behind all this Behind this list that he gives here is this. It's disordered 
with isn't that different really here from what the list he just gave there in verses 9 through 10. All of these things that believers in the Lord, they're not to be known for. They're not to be known for sexual morality. Or generally, if you want a simple way of just understanding that, any sex outside of marriage. Sexual morality. Or more specifically, which I think we do need to be specific, which we will as we go into chapter 6 as well, but more specifically, it might include today things like living together prior to marriage, fornication, pornography, adultery, and more. And what's the issue there? Sex is their God. Disorder worship. Also, we're not to be known for greed. We're to be known as those who serve and they pursue and they long for what? The God of money. Nor idolaters, which certainly would have included physical idols in the church of Corinth, right? But it goes much farther than that as well. It includes anything set above God as their God, as your God. Revilers. Those who attack, they malign and they tear others apart. God of self. Drunkards, or those who drink alcohol in excess, but it's not just limited to alcohol, it's alcohol or drugs, is their God. Swindlers, or those who out of service to their God of money, they take it, they steal it, and they deceptively gain it. Now among all of these is what? Disorder, worship. Not as victims. None of us are victims when it comes to sin. We love our sin. That's why you're doing it. But as treasures of something else, anything else above God and above Christ, it's an issue of love. They love something, someone else, even themselves more than God. And so as believers, our chief love of all loves is the one triune God through whom we know and we worship through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now as you hear all this, and you look at this list, you and I are not to sit back and say, well, yeah, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm pretty great. I mean, that's not the conclusion we're to have as we see this. It's right for you and for us to consider what is or who is your chief love. I mean, like we read in the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon 8, 6 even, is your love for God like flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord? Is that the kind of love you have for God, like your affections your heart, your life is just his. Or is it like the psalmist? In Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. God is to be 
the chief love of our souls above everything else Amen. and above anything else. When you look at your marriage or your life or relationships, and where there is disorder, it often comes right back to this. Your love for God and your love for others. But it begins with your love for God. Maybe you're loving something more than money. And so money is the center in my marriage and you get out of my way, wife or husband. You're not going to touch my God or it could be children, which is a big one today. Right? That's why we have helicopter parents and so on. You do not talk to my child that way. You do not mess with my love for this God I have. Husband, wife, grandparents, nobody can tell me anything about my kids. You have a disordered worship, friends, if that's the case. Our love for God is to be supreme above everything else and anything else. Amen. And if we take all that in, we have a sobering point to see here about these, about those who claim to know Christ, yet are living in unrepentant sins like these. Here's the, the point. They are not to be part of this community. They are not to be part of this community. And so Paul, he said, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who does these things, the list he gives, and as he says there at the end of verse 11, not even to eat with such a one. Now this is a hard passage. I'm not going to act like it's not. And it's not just because of what it's calling us to do. It's hard to know if Paul means eating as in the Lord's Supper, which I think it certainly includes that. Or is it eating as in you don't have any specific social interactions with them at all? Now, it's not an easy question. But I lean on the side of both to greater or lesser degree. Them not being allowed to take part in the Lord's Supper, because why? Who's to take part in the Lord's Supper? Believers. And if they're not part of the community, you're saying they're not part of the community, you're saying they're not a believer. So that, and not just interacting with them as though everything is okay which I think is a proper application of what he's saying, not to even eat with such a one, to interact with them, not just interact with them as though everything is okay. It says, not even to eat with such a one. It doesn't mean, it doesn't seem that he would need that, not even, that word, if he was just referring to the Lord's Supper. And so it includes saying, it's saying unrepentant sin is not okay, that they are not to act like it is, that it's just fine, unrepentant sin, you're not to act like it's okay, church. And those living in unrepentant sin are not to be part of this community, they are to be excluded from membership. Amen. 
very real, very direct applications for every single church throughout the world. And so this man, this is a man who was engaged in sexual morality, and he was to be removed from the community. And the weight of this, it becomes even more apparent in that last verse, right? Verse 13, when Paul, he writes, purge the evil person from among you. Now, as we read all this, we also see the biblical nature of church membership here as well. You can't be put out of something that you're not part of. You can't be made not part of the community if you're already not considered to be part of the community. And so now to add to all of this, making all Paul is saying here even weightier, he has in mind a host of passages here from the book of Deuteronomy that say exactly this. Purge, verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. So where am I getting that? I'm not going to put it on the screen, but here you go. You ready? Deuteronomy 13, 5, Deuteronomy 17, 7, 19, 19, 21, 21, 22, 21, 24, 7. And so he's, he's taking that from that old covenant picture and bringing it right here into the new covenant community. As Israel was called to remove people from the community, so also we are to do as well. And so like I said, this is a weighty passage. And as we consider this, see what Paul is calling us to do. He's calling for you and he's calling for us to let the world lead you to lead us in several ways. First, let the world lead you by not hating the sinner, but rather by loving them and taking up this call to church discipline. The objections will come, and that's why right now you need to see this is an act of holy love when a church does this rightly, humbly, following the word. Amen. As Paul said, God judges those outside, and he has called us under his word to judge those inside. Members. Now note that. God will judge. Friends, as you see that, that God judges those outside, we have heard this so often, it can just go blow right past us. But we need to see that we are not dealing with abstractions here. We are dealing with realities. Real, tangible, eternal judgment is coming. And so love calls us to this. We're not making this up. We're not making up hell. We're not making up eternal judgment. These are realities that will come. Amen. So if we say we love God, if we say we love others, then this will impact us. This will impact us going out and telling the lost about Jesus Christ. 
and it will impact us as we see someone among us who is living in unrepentant sin, and we don't say, well, that's just fine with me. We say, I love that person so much. I love God more. Because I love him, I love them, and because of that, I'm going to do this. So love calls us to this. It calls us to pray for them. It calls us to reason with them. It calls us to administer the good medicine of God's word in action. And we're not to go on and interact with them as though nothing is wrong. They need to repent and turn to Christ. Amen. Second, let the world lead you by addressing worldliness in your own heart and life. Sins like these begin in hearts. And not just hearts out there, but hearts in here. Our hearts, my heart, your heart. And as Mike, he read a moment ago from 1 John chapter 2, the heartbeat of worldliness is living for the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride, the pride of life. So it's a heart in you, worldliness, that's centered around you. It's centered around your desires, and it's centered around your idols. It's crossless, desire-driven, earthly, fleshly, God-rejecting desires in us. And so you and I, this morning, are to address worldliness in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our lives, in our actions. Third, let the world lead you by correcting a wrong conclusion. Unbelievers are welcome here. This is not a call for our churches to be closed off to unbelievers. Paul, he's not saying that. He's not saying, all right, only member, like believers can gather here. Oh, an unbeliever comes in? Sorry, you're not allowed in. That's not what he's saying. As we hear this, we're not to make that conclusion, like no unbelievers are allowed to come and hear the preaching of the word and everything else in our services. That's not it. He's not saying that, even as he'll make clear later in chapter 14. He's addressing those who claim to be believers, yet are living like unbelievers. We are to be a witness to the world. However, we won't be a witness to the world by giving the world more of itself. We, the church, are to be different, united, pure, Defined by the cross and the love of Christ. Which leads us forth then to say, let the world lead you by embracing God's call for us to be a holy people and an unholy world. You know, one theologian, he helpfully defined worldliness as everything in the culture which made sinning look normal and righteousness look on. It's worldliness. Can you fill it? 
character to be different. Amen. You are to be different. Mm -hmm. The church isn't to look like the world, even as it goes out into the world. It's to look like Christ. That's why he has you where you are. That's why he has you at your workplace. That's why he has you here in Madison, Alabama. That's why he has you in your neighborhood. That's why he has you around those friends and your family and people. You are to be Christ to them. You're to be different from the world. And you are to be like Christ. The church isn't to look like the world. It's to look like him. Amen. So in the midst of a broken, sinful, lost world, the church is to shine as a light in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of wars, in the midst of evils upon evils all around us. And that, not through its degradation, and not through its worldliness, but through its being like Christ. C.S. Lewis, he said it well. It's both a warning to us and to unbelievers alike. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get night. But fear God this morning. If you are here and you do not know Christ, the exhortation is life is before you, not death. Death is what we all have outside of Christ, but life is what Christ offers to you in that eternal life forever. And so may you take it into your hands, and may you take it into your hearts this morning, and may you repent and believe and take up Christ, not simply as some moralistic guy that you're following or some religi religious thing that you're doing, but as the treasure of your heart, the treasure of your soul. Amen. That you would lay down your life for Christ. That one, he took on God's wrath in your place. He took on that judgment that you and I deserve in your place. He came to save you and redeem you and make you his. Amen. And he can do that right now and save you. Simply call on the Lord. And he is good. Come to me, he says. Well, will you come to him this morning? Friends, we do not preach on God's judgment just to scare people. We preach on God's judgment because it's real and it is coming. Amen. But we need to examine ourselves and make sure we're in the faith we have. So may we do that in believers, church. May we take up Paul's words here. They are hard words, but they are God's words. So let Christ, let the purity of Christ, and let the cross of Christ be seen in us, be seen through us, and be seen among us, church. Amen. Even 
in days like ours. Let's pray. Father, we come and you know that this week as I wrestled with this passage and took it up, I prayed because I know that these things are things that not only our church but many churches struggle with and are tempted so often to do, to not do or even to do, but to do in such a way that they forsake Christ and the cross of Christ. And the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ. We are called not to forsake these things, and not to walk in contrary ways to Christ, but to take up these things in view of Christ our Lord. We're to examine ourselves. We're to set our lives and ourselves before you. We're to set this church before you. And to say, Lord, we, we don't ever come to things like these lightly. But Lord, we will come to them. Because you are our Lord and you are our life. You are our joy. Because we love others. So we look to you, Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to take up these words, help us as individuals to take up these words, help us right now, every one of us, to examine ourselves and consider worldliness in our own hearts, in our thoughts, in our worldview even, things that we believe in but just simply are not true. Help us, Father, show us, search us, and if there's any here who don't know you, may they call out your name right now. Amen. Not looking at everyone else, not thinking about everyone else, not thinking about things they've done or what things that, what people may think, but rather they would just look to Christ and trust in you, Lord. And so be with us as we respond. Help us, Father. Give us grace. May your spirit work in us. And every one of us in Haven Baptist Church and every member and every person here right now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.